If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can you imagine a day sometime in the future when we will think back on Vaximillion as some quaint idea and it won't dominate the news? Can't imagine it now. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Jane Cahoon. It's the Thursday before Memorial Day weekend, and we're all grumpy because it's supposed to be cold and be rainy. <laughs> At least part of it. And I keep hoping the forecast will change. We've got a couple days. Right, hey, there's... I'll just be happy to be off. <laughs> You're never really off, Jane. <laughs> True. All right, let's begin. How can members of the Ohio House justify letting cities collect income taxes from people who neither live nor work within their borders? Laura Johnston, when this was an emergency measure last year because of the pandemic, it still seemed wrong, but you understood it. But now they're extending it for all of 2021. I don't get it. How can anybody tax me when I have nothing to do with them? It's a a very good question. You can make a very good argument. And there's a lot of legal Uh, challenges right now that are making that same argument. But you're right. The original idea was during the pandemic, we all went scurrying to our houses and these companies didn't want to have to figure out how to divvy up paychecks based on dozens of municipalities. So the General Assembly passed a law that said they could just base it on where the office was. And cities were big fans of this because that meant they got to hang on to a whole lot of revenue. Obviously, there are these legal challenges. One has been decided, you know, it's going to be appealed, but in favor of the cities. And now the House, the Ohio House, mostly along party lines, has approved this new law that allows companies to continue withholding this municipal income tax only through the rest of 2021 and on a voluntary basis. I'm not exactly sure what on a voluntary basis means. I mean, do they get to ask me if I want my taxes to go to Cleveland? Because I will say no. But starting in 2022, they have to keep the taxes the way that they used to. So you have to be taxed based on where you live, if you're, or sorry, where you work. So if you're working out of your home, that means you get taxed just for your home city. The Ohio Municipal League is still fighting this bill. They say, no, the city should be able to keep collecting the tax forever, which seems insane. Jane Cahoon, these are Republicans. They're supposed to stick it to the cities. I don't get it. <laughs> well, I think they would say that they are sticking it to the cities uh, because uh, Derek Marin, one of the people pushing this House Bill 157, said, you know, people just aren't working in urban areas. And sorry, folks, that's the way it is. So I think they think by putting things back the way they were in 2022, I think maybe they think that's good enough. Maybe they're trying to sort of have it both ways. I, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like they're giving it a grace period. Like you're going to have to give this up city. So you've got seven more months to figure it out. I mean, like for Cleveland, we're talking about a 2.5% income tax on workers. 85% of that money comes from workers who live beyond the city limits. They are going to be decimated by that. And that's what the Democrats said. They're saying, Oh no, don't take this money away from the cities. It's going to be really bad for them. Um, I, right, but, people can but, seek refunds too. Right? Yes. Yeah, I know, so. but I shouldn't have to seek the refund. They shouldn't be able to reach into my pocket. Look, by the time this is over, 
It's going to be nearly two years of taxes collected. For people who work in Cleveland, that's 5% of their annual pay. That's a lot of money for people. I mean, 5%. Uh, I just can't, I can't see it. I, I, what I'm really surprised at, um, Leila Tassi, we were talking about this before the podcast started. I'm surprised no lawyer has seen a gigantic cash payday in a class action suit because they yeah. represent everybody who's paying taxes to every city getting, and the, you know, the lawyers get a gigantic percentage of that. Where are they? I'm just surprised you haven't seen that. That's a great question. I think we're going to uh, plan a follow on that to, to kind of talk to some of those lawyers who normally do jump on an opportunity like this and ask, you know, is there something about this case that, that makes it, you know, not ripe for that sort of approach? Um, so hopefully we'll have an answer to that in the next week or two here. What this really speaks to, because the work from home thing is going to be hybrid. So for people that had been downtown five days a week, they may be downtown two days a week. So does that mean they should pay taxes on 40% of the money they make? It speaks to a need to completely reform the municipal income tax system. We ought to have a countywide income countywide, tax right, municipalities right. where they all share equally uh, based on population, I guess. But but I think what this has proven is the current structure cannot stand. And and it's and the cities are... Go- I mean, if this becomes a retroactive thing where you get the money back, they're going to go broke. Although they do have enormous amounts of stimulus money that they can plug in to save it. Right, Layla? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's definitely coming down, <laughs> coming down the road here. It's but not going to last you know, forever. No, no, not forever. And, you know, I, I still don't quite understand why the suburbs aren't jockeying for for, you know, uh, why, why aren't they making their voices heard in this? What What's the, you know, why are they? Well, you got they suburbs like that, that make a lot of, you know, income tax money. So I don't think they would get in on a fight like that. South well, Euclid you know, actually passed a resolution in favor of like the municipal league siding with them. And all we could figure out was that they don't want to have to redo everything. And this this bill actually says you can't get refunds for 2020. Like we've moved on, folks. Don't even try. Hmm. Which I, I cannot imagine a court will stand by that. But so far, I mean, they're, 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 this has been adjudicated in one place, right? Jane mm-hmm. Cahoon and the judge was a shill yeah. for the home uh, county. I, and... I did think you could file for refunds for the 2020 tax year, though. It's just Not the, court, this the bill, courts right? are going to... I thought that the courts are going to decide uh, because, as you said, Chris, yes, the the Buckeye Institute is the one that has pursued. Um, they're on fire over this issue, and they pursued a bunch of lawsuits. They lost in Franklin County. The judge said, "Yeah, the legislature had the right to do this," and they are. They have um, put them on notice that they're appealing uh, that. So. Yeah, I think you can still request a refund, but they're like, I think it's um, they're going to just wait till it plays out in the court. They're going to hold on to your money until then. There haven't been a whole lot of developments um, that I've seen over the decades that boggle my mind like this one. But this is one where where you're reaching into the pockets of people who have nothing to do with you and taking money. I mean, it'd be like Hawaii deciding it's going to tax me. And and yet you had a judge say, yes, that's OK clearly playing for the home team. But you know what, Chris, you are completely right in that this just begs for us to look at the system and redo it. It's just one of the many things that you're like, okay, this gave us a chance to take a breath. Instead of going back to the status quo, what is a better way to do this? Exactly. We should be talking about that. 
maybe the next set of leaders coming in at the city, county, and Greater Cleveland Partnership will come up with that idea. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With two resolutions introduced to oust Larry Householder from the Ohio House, what is House Speaker Bob Cup going to do? Jane Cahoon, I'm betting the answer is a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> yeah, you know, when we saw these two resolutions filed, one from Democrats and one from Republicans, we thought, hmm, the, this dam might be finally breaking. But after hearing Cup on Wednesday, I would not be so sure. As you said, he's taking his usual low-key, tight-lipped approach to this. He he gave absolutely no indication when the House would move forward with either the Democratic or Republican-sponsored resolutions to expel householder, or whether they have the necessary two-thirds that they need, the two-thirds vote to, to pass this. So Cup first said in a statement Wednesday morning that lawmakers are split on whether to remove householder now or wait until his court case plays out. Uh, we should say that he's charged in what the feds say is the largest bribery scheme in Ohio history to pass House Bill 6. And uh, Cup said that the resolutions filed will receive the appropriate process according to House rules. And then in the afternoon, uh, when he talked to reporters, he, he wouldn't commit to holding a floor vote on these resolutions before they leave for the summer. And he, he said, this has not occurred in Ohio, as far as we know, for at least a century. So it's, a, it's new ground, and we want to be very careful about doing it properly. A and then just as a bonus to this, Householder himself weighed in on this in what you might call an interesting choice of words, Chris. I think you might characterize it a little differently, but he dismissed both of these resolutions as politicians playing politics on government time. Now, do we need to remind people that that's what he's accused of doing in this giant bribery scheme? Anyway, he he was trying to say that some of the people behind these resolutions were running for Congress. And, and uh, you know, he just said, there's a process for all this and wow. hopefully we'll follow it. So he, that I thought that was a real, you know, a real kicker to this. He knows no shame. Look, I think the, the, this, this is so bizarre what Cup is doing that, that it really forces a question of why is he protecting Larry Householder? And this is strange. He has a guy that has disgraced the whole body, who he has said multiple times, I think he should be gone. But he is now impeding the efforts of others to cleanse the body. And you got to just sit back and say, why? Does Larry Householder have something on him? We know that's how Larry Householder operates. And it just, it, it defies any explanation why cop would stand by this guy this deep into it. So then you start have to start questioning what is his motive? What don't we know about the relationship between Bob cup and Larry Householder? Yeah, he seems to be really, you know, controlled for lack of a better word by some elements in his caucus who, who don't want to oust Larry Householder. And, you know, but it's why? strange, you know, I don't know. I was just thinking to when Larry Householder was the speaker, hey, he even worked with Democrats on some things to to get them passed. I mean, Cup could get the votes from Democrats and Republicans here to do this, I think. But, you know, I, I just I just it's, don't get it. Why would you stay? It, it, it's just so you have to start looking behind 
behind the curtain to to say what what is the actual reason for this because what's on the surface makes no sense it makes no sense for bob cup to be standing this firmly behind larry householder and just and just throwing words at us that mean nothing um I, you know i just i wonder whether we need to just start doing more digging there anyway you're listening to this week in the cle how critical is a 35 million dollar federal grant to demolishing the awful and forbidding woodhill homes project and replacing it with public housing that is much more a part of the fabric of the Larchmere neighborhood in Cleveland. Leila Tassi, we've talked about Woodhill Homes before. It is one of the most forbidding places I've ever seen. It's dreary. It's just a horrible place to have people live. And now we have this grand vision. How important is this money to getting it done? This is huge. Big, big news. It'll go a long way toward making this project a reality in that neighborhood. HUD announced yesterday that Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority and the city are going to receive this $35 million uh, infusion for this project. And the goal is to demolish the 487-unit public housing projects there and replace them with 638 new apartments. Also, CMHA wants to offer 162 new housing vouchers that residents can use to you know, live there or elsewhere. But it's it's even more than that. Broadly, you know, the project involves adding low income and market rate apartments, adding streets to connect the neighborhood, adding senior housing, creating new parks, common areas, rehabilitating existing homes. Woodhill homes will be demolished, like I said, and rebuilt within the next several years. And some of the public housing units will be mixed with the other low income and market rate apartments that won't be overseen by CMHA. So, and they're talking also about, about a new health clinic and early childhood education center and retail space. The, the $35 million is, is only a portion of what they need to accomplish all of these goals, but it will really help them get started right away. Workers are planning to break ground on the first 120 apartments as soon as this year, and um, it, that's going to be called Woodhill Station West. This, uh, you know, like you were you were describing, Chris, the 80 year old complex, it looks like barracks. It's 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 in about as bad a condition as you can imagine, even, you know, among the properties in CMHA's portfolio. It's it's one of the worst. Many of the residents, they lack Internet access. They have heating problems. The architect on this project reported back in August that only 27 percent of apartments in Woodhill homes have shower heads. And it's especially isolated and depressed as a neighborhood, despite being less than two miles away from Shaker Square or University Circle. This project really aims to, to not only improve the living conditions for the families that, that call this place home, but to connect it to the rest of the city. So this is visionary stuff and uh, really, really exciting. Uh, the councilman, Blaine Griffin, who represents that, that neighborhood, is so excited. He was just on cloud nine yesterday. Um, so... Um, well, you and, know, and he lives, and he lives in the Larchmere neighborhood and, and it, it, there's such a dramatic shift as you drive through the Larchmere neighborhood and then you get to Woodhill homes. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine that they're, they're in the same city. And what this would do is create something that, that meshes much more with Larchmere and this is right near Opportunity Corridor. So, so as right. Opportunity Corridor brings the expected, development you'll have housing that is that that fits with you know a community instead of this hulking place where i can't imagine growing up there you would come out with any kind of optimism so this is a big deal and you're right blaine griffin 
uh, managed to get it. Does this have anything to do with Marsha Fudge being the new HUD secretary? I mean, they they applied for this grant last year and in 2020 and and were rejected. They beefed up their grant application this time with, you know, more details, more partnerships uh, and were successful. But, you know, there is that added X factor there of Marsha Fudge being at the head of the of HUD. So who knows? Maybe she did kind of put her thumb on the scale. I don't know. Well, I would not. <laughs> Either way, this that. is great news. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a really big deal. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is President Joe Biden visiting Cleveland today? Laura Johnston, I imagine there are places in America that have never had a presidential visit or a presidential candidate visit. Cleveland cannot imagine what that would be like. We get them all the time. Yeah, I mean, probably more uh, from Joe Biden the last two months. I'm not sure how many times Trump visited, but I'm sure Jane probably has a better idea. But Biden's going to visit Cuyahoga Community College in Cleveland on Thursday. That's today to make this clear case that his economic plan is working. So his um, press secretary said he's going to talk about how far we've come as a country because of these actions over the last four months and how we've turned the tide on the pandemic and created 500,000 jobs each month on average. So they want to talk about this building back better infrastructure plans. And um, obviously, Cleveland's a pretty receptive place for a Democratic president to be. Our Republican Senator Rob Portman wants um, Biden to address the $300 a week extra federal unemployment money, which Ohio has already cut out. So he wants also to caution that the stimulus money that led to the um, this resurgent will lead to inflation. So, of course, there's some some pushback from the Republicans. Will will there be a crowd there or is it? walled off and mask only kind of thing that is a very good question i believe our seth richardson will be there but maybe jane cahoon knows more about that of what it's going to look like i think it's just a pooled press event so if they have people there they'll be like invited but you know i imagine there'll be some people there who who are invited to it, but I don't think it's- You gotta have applause, right? If you just have pool, there's no applause. Well, but I do wonder with all that's been lifted, are we getting back to a point where you could have a crowd? I mean, you really haven't been able to do that for more than a year. Well, all I know is that, you know, Seth, for instance, despite vaccination, he had to get a COVID test within 24 hours of this visit to be allowed to cover it. So well, it wasn't just media, Jane, any, any politician that is, was going to be there also had to do that. They had to follow the same rules. I, th- I think people were annoyed by this. It's like, Oh, great. I get to go be with Joe Biden. Look at all the, the steps I have to go through to get there. <laughs> um, because you have to follow their protocol. I mean, Seth, had, it wasn't that Seth could pick his own place to get the test, right? They were, they sent him somewhere specific. He, no, he actually did. I, I, I think there might've been some suggestions made as to where he should go, but he arranged it himself. Okay. But he had to provide proof. Well, welcome to Cleveland, President Joe Biden. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Senator Sherrod Brown ask the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase in a public hearing yesterday 
whether the CEO works 900 times harder than some other employees of the banking company. Jane Cahoon, Sherrod Brown has wit. And I really love that he asked that question. <laughs> this was classic Sherrod Brown. This moment was just tailor-made for him as he's embracing this new role that he has as chair of the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban, Urban Affairs. It gave him the perfect opportunity to push his dignity of work mantra to, to just set the stage here. He had the CEOs of the nation's six largest bank banks before his committee, and he really castigated them for profiting at the expense of everyday workers. He noted that the CEO to median worker pay ratio is now 320 to one. And um, he just basically scolded them saying their profits have gone up, stock prices have uh, soared, their own compensation is in the stratosphere, but workers keep getting a smaller and smaller share. Anyway, in particular, to get to your question, he asked J.P. Morgan Chase and Company CEO Jamie Dimon whether he works 900 times harder than the company employees who make one nine hundredth of his salary. I believe Dimon makes something like, you know, almost $32 million. So you can do the math there uh, with one nine hundredth of that that the workers are making. But Dimon told Brown that his company was proud of the opportunities it gives employees. You know, they have starting wages of about $35,000, including medical and retirement benefits. He said, we take good care of our people and his, you know, compensation is set by the board and they look at all kinds of factors. But, you know, Brown was just like on a complete roll. He, he also asked these CEOs whether they'd fight formation of unions at their companies. And um, you could just see why Brown is so beloved by labor people and how he relished this chance to put these executives on the grill. Um, he did get some pushback from at least one Republican on the committee, Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, who, you know, used the term wokeism derisively, and he expressed concerns about, you know, appeasing the far left's attack on capitalism. He he said, well-run businesses are supposed to benefit their shareholders. So anyway, you know, as I said, Brown was on on a roll. He wrapped up with another powerful statement, basically saying, the more you pay your employees, the worse you're going to do on Wall Street, the less power you give workers, the better you'll do, et cetera. He said, you know, this view that American workers are uh, some kind of cost to cut instead of a valuable asset to invest in, you know, that's what's wrong. With well, what, what's interesting is, is we've been reading the stories for, for some years now uh, that that the disparity between the CEOs and the lowest paid workers, it's gotten bigger than it's ever been by a magnitude that's hard to imagine. But rare do you, rarely do you get the, that moment where somebody's held to account for it. And the way he phrased that question just <laughs> drills it home. Are you, do you work 900 times harder than the guy that, that, because that, that disparity is ridiculous at this point. And, and when you sit back and look at it, why, why is anybody being paid $32 million a year? You're really saying that you can't get somebody to do that job well for $10 million a year or $5 million a year. This guy's performance is that stellar that he merits making that kind of money and, and give it to Sherrod for, for just drilling in and exemplifying it. No, no better way to get a good soundbite than asking a question like that. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
What will $2.7 million in spending approved by a Cleveland City Council Committee Wednesday do to actually curb youth violence in the city? Leila Tassi, we've talked and talked and talked and talked about youth violence in the city and Frank Jackson's various programs to try and address it. If the full council approves this spending, what will it be used for? This Mayor Frank Jackson launched this program in in 2018, and the idea was to expand Cleveland's 22 recreation centers so that they would be more than a place to socialize and play basketball or swim or what what have you. They would become resource centers that help families deal with the impacts of trauma and toxic stress. And this really goes hand in hand with the Jackson administration's focus on treating violence as a public health crisis rather than a criminal one. The idea is that children who are constantly exposed to stress, poverty, crime, and violence, and and just sort of the general sense of helplessness, that they can really suffer health consequences from the constant release of stress hormones in the body, and that those consequences can affect behavior, including leading to violence, and that this can, can stretch clear into adulthood. So staff were trained to identify the symptoms of toxic stress. This is the staff of the recreation centers. Uh, they trained counselors um, to come in and, and, um, and they were made available at each of these rec, site, rec sites. And programs were expanded beyond just the traditional recreational activities and so that there were education and job training and health and wellness and arts and non-traditional sports like rowing. So this additional $2.7 million that the administration is asking for for the next 18 months Um, would create a diversion program to help kids between the ages of 15 and 19 from, to keep them from entering the criminal justice system. Uh, That would include wraparound services and job training. It would create a reentry program for kids between 17 and 20 years old who are being released from the Cuyahoga Hills Juvenile Correction Facility. And that program will also work with families to prepare them and provide a supportive environment um, for, for those, those kids. And then it would also create summer employment for about 200 young people in grades 8 through 12, and they'll be paid $8.80 an hour for part-time jobs. And there would also be this pilot program that they're they're examining that would provide life and job skills to 10 middle-grade youth. Uh, so the idea behind that is that they will identify community problems and study solutions to those problems. I'm not quite sure how um, what, what would be the, you know, the deliverable at the end of that, but, but that'll be an interesting thing to follow and see, um, how, how that plays out for that pilot program. Um, Sounds like so, a lot so, to yeah, get so, done for yeah, so little it money. Does. I mean, does 2.7 right, right. million cover that? I, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like it, it's, uh, it, it could, um, but, uh, you know, this will go through the, the council vetting process and, uh, we'll see, we'll see how it, how it fleshes out. But, but this so far is, I mean, his, his programming at the rec centers, Bob Higgs has said has been, has been, you know, very productive and, and, and has been a good shift in the way those resources are used so far. So this is expanding upon something that's been kind of successful for the Jackson administration. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why should people expect to go through the two weeks of hell I just went through with head and chest colds this summer? Laura Johnston, this is one of the newsroom's dreaded Chris Quinn's life becomes a story assignment. (laughs) Examples? Uh, 
Julie Washington got the duty and what did she find? So she found that, yeah, um, we're going to be looking at a lot more colds this year. And it's not like the pandemic changed our immune system to make us more susceptible to it. It's because we're mingling. We took off our masks and that's giving cold viruses an opportunity to spread. It is not flu season, thank goodness, but the common cold doesn't have a season. It's not like it looks for that dry indoor air to spread. And part of the story is that the pandemic limited our exposure to cold viruses. So we haven't had them in a year. So we haven't built up any immunity to anything that's going around. But really, the experts say it's more about relaxing our restrictions and precautions. If you really don't want to get sick, then, you know, wearing a mask will keep helping you and staying outside. It's going indoors and dropping those those masks and the space restrictions. It's really going to get you. I, I'm surprised at how many people are still wearing masks, even though they don't have to. I keep thinking that's going to go away. Um, I wonder if this, if if summer colds do spread, um, if that will create an uptick in COVID tests, because as soon as people have those symptoms for more than a few days, they're going to run in and get a test. That's what I did on day 10. It was like, okay, I've been sick for 10 days. Do I have COVID? Uh, I went and got the test and didn't. But I wonder if uh, th this is going to be a lot of false alarms, even for people who are vaccinated. I, I think you're right. I mean, that's going to be the first thought. I know I had a friend whose kid was sick over the weekend and he's a kid, right? So he's not vaccinated. So they went and got him a COVID test. It was negative. But I think that is going to be the first thought for people that, oh, no, like, what if this is a variant that they didn't know about? So I think there is a there's some stress and some anxiety that comes along with getting sick at this point. And there's nothing worse than the summer cold because you want to be outside. You want to be doing things, you know, getting a cold in, in February. It's not quite, quite as damaging okay. as, to the as someone else pointed out earlier, there is a worse thing than the summer cold. It's called COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. nobody, you're right. Nobody wants to be sick when everybody else is out having a good time. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. <laughs> Let's do one more. Who are the winners in the first Vaximilian drawings? Jane Cahoon, how could we have this podcast episode without talking about the first Vaximilian drawing? <laughs> and, you know, we're having this podcast because none of us won, right? So <laughs> maybe next <laughs> <this> week. <laughs> or anyone from Northeast Ohio. In fact, the, the first million dollar winner was Abigail Bogensky of Silverton, which is near Cincinnati in Hamilton County. And the first winner of the full college scholarship was Joseph Costello of Englewood, which is in suburban Dayton in Montgomery County. They they learned only shortly before they were announced to the rest of the state at, at 729 last night. They didn't appear on the show or anything. They just showed the names in the hometowns. But uh, today, uh, soon, Governor Mike DeWine is going to have a news conference with, with the winners. So we'll get to maybe know a little more about them. And we got uh, four more drawings coming up over the next four Wednesdays through June 23rd. You know what would be fascinating to find out, I don't know if they can tell us, is the geographic breakdown of the people that entered. You know, the, but we have two downstate winners, so did, I wonder if if there are more people hmm. entered down there or something. I wonder if they could give us a county-by-county county breakdown of, uh, of who entered the two drawings. Anyway, yes, there'll be four more drawings, and Mike DeWine will get plenty more earned media. I don't <laughs> think he's ever had an idea in his career that has been this much talked about across the globe. Well done, Mike DeWine. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
All right, we got one more day, one more day of news to talk about tomorrow before the Memorial Day weekend. We will not have an episode on Memorial Day. We will have one tomorrow and be back on Tuesday. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE.